You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. When I was a child, the only other disease growing up that was worse than chicken pox was cooties. It's a rare genetic chromosomal disorder that prevented interaction with the opposite gender. If you were a boy and you were somehow touched by a girl, the vaccine could be administered only by someone who already had it. And if you know it, it goes a little something like this. Circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I've got my cootie shot. The truth is, outside of Hollywood and the movies that we've seen, it was actually unfathomable that we would ever experience a disease in our lifetime like we were hit with in March of 2020. There's a handful of life events that you'll never forget where you were when it happened. One of them for me was 9-11. Maybe for you, it was when the U.S. elected its first African-American president. Maybe it was the Oklahoma City bombing. Or when the Cold War came to an end. Maybe for you, you actually remember when you first created your Facebook account. <laughs> and of course, COVID-19. For me, it was a Friday, March 13th was coming back from leading our first mission trip with about 36 of us down the Amazon River. And upon pulling back into port in north central Brazil, the city of Manaus that day, the participants on the boat who had had international phone plans began to receive service for the first time. And the news was quickly received and spread. The U.S., was shutting down. March Madness was canceled. The NBA canceled all foreseeable games. We arrived to the airport that night. And before the flight left, I received the news at around 11 p.m. that for a short while made me the most popular person in the airport. Students, I've just received word from the district that school is canceled next week and you will get an additional week of spring break. They were elated. They thought it was the greatest thing ever. Didn't last very long, did it? We all know how that turned out because the last two years have been like nothing this generation's ever seen. Every part of our lives was upended. The respiratory illness that began as a relatively small outbreak in a province of China, developed into a worldwide health crisis. COVID didn't just take away lives, it also took away the norm of our relationships. In an attempt to curb the infection, governments enforced social distancing. International travel was closed off, schools were shut down, businesses were halted, Churches moved online, and workers lost their jobs, or many were forced to work remotely. The worldwide pandemic provoked a social crisis. 
that as long as the pandemic kept us in our homes, bonds with friends in the outside world would weaken. And bonds inside the home endured the added pressure of a constant proximity. There's another disease in the Bible that is not only highly contagious, but actually contained a far worse stigma. It tells the story of a man who, when infected, could not have anyone near him, let alone touch him, but then somebody did. It's the story about a world also infected with a horrible disease, but God touched it. It's your story, and it's mine. Verse 40 introduces us to a leper. We don't even know the man's name, but clearly his identity is wrapped up in the disease he's contracted. So in order to better understand the disease, its cultural impact, the biblical context surrounding what we've read this morning, let me take a moment to describe the disease as it was understood in the first century. The most common kind of leprosy began with a sense of lethargy and pain in the joints. Soon, discolored patches and nodules left the face of the victim unrecognizable. When the sores would ulcerate, the stench was intolerable. The vocal cords would also ulcerate, leaving the person's voice hoarse and raspy. But the great damage from leprosy was actually caused by a loss of sensation. Dr. Paul Brand, leading researcher of the 20th century, spent most of his life's work with lepers in India. And he writes one time of trying to enter into a padlock gate. But the rusty lock would not yield to his key. So he tells the story of a young leper boy who walked up next to him and placed his finger in the lock. And he twisted it all the way until the lock opened. And when the boy pulled his finger back, it had been gnashed to the bone. But the boy couldn't even feel it. Lepers often lose fingers and toes. Many used to think this was caused by the disease as if it was some extreme version of gangrene. It's not so much the case because Dr. Brand and his researchers stayed up at night watching the lepers as they slept. Rats would come and gnaw at the lepers' extremities. But because they felt no pain, they would sleep right through it. They would wake up in the morning to find part of their body gone unless someone was there to protect them and keep watch over them. The first sign of leprosy was regarded as a death sentence. Leviticus chapter 13 actually outlines the procedures for someone who has leprosy. It says, the person who has the leprous disease should wear torn clothes and let the hair of their head be disheveled. They should cover up their upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He should remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He should live alone. His dwelling should be outside the camp. 
In other words, the law was quite clear. Do not touch. But the rabbis carried this much further. If a leper came into someone's house, the home itself was said to be defiled. And because it was impure, it should be destroyed. Just imagine the thought for a moment of never being able to be touched again. Never to feel the warm embrace of a spouse. The hand grasping with a friend. The gentle kiss of a mother on your cheek. The proud arm of a father draped across your shoulder. The incessant tickling of your kids. See, leprosy wasn't just a physical disease. It also carried with it a moral stigma. It was assumed to be a curse from God because other diseases you could be healed from, but leprosy, you had to be cleansed. Lepers weren't just sick. They were considered to be unclean. They were dirty. They were impure. They were incapable of physical interaction. This is why the Gospel of Mark says the leper came imploring on his knees, begging before Jesus. That's why he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Or if you choose. It's interesting. In Mark chapter 9, there was a father of a demon-possessed child who tells Jesus, if you can, have mercy on us. But the leper here has no doubts about whether Jesus could heal him. He just doubts that Jesus would actually want to. Some of us in the room this morning don't struggle with doubting God's existence. Shoot, we don't struggle to understand his power, cherish his majestic wonder. He's a mighty God. We believe in his greatness, but I'd venture to find that many of us doubt his goodness and his grace. Eventually, God's just going to pull the rug out from underneath me. He'll prove to me all along what I thought to be true about him. He doesn't love me where I am. We have such a deep sense of unworthiness that we are overcome with shame. There's no way he could love me. I'm a leper. I'm a criminal. I'm an adulterer. I'm a fornicator. I'm a drunk. I'm untouchable. Just like the leper, the roots of our shame run so deep. It produces a fear of the unknown in our lives actually becoming known. So much so, we doubt Jesus would truly love us if we ever talked about the things that we have done, or rather, the things done to us. But Jesus doesn't hesitate to respond to his doubts. Before he says a word, he does something so shocking, it was more astounding than the healing itself. Jesus reaches out his hand, and he touches him. 
Surely Jesus forgot about the law. He slipped up. Perhaps he just made a mistake. He didn't mean to. But everything Jesus does is intentional. Then why touch him? I mean, think about it. He didn't need to touch the leper to heal him. You don't have to turn very far. Turn the page. Mark chapter 2. Jesus is preaching in a crowded room. Four friends lower their paralyzed friend through the roof. You thought a, a baby crying was a distraction during a sermon. And, and he looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus, being God, perceives the thoughts of the Pharisees, not, not their words out loud, perceives their thoughts. Who is this that can forgive sins? And Jesus publicly acknowledges their thoughts before everybody. Which is greater? For me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to him, get up and walk? And he says, so that you will know the Son of Man has authority in heaven and on earth. And he looks at the paralyzed man and says, get up. Take your mat and go home. Jesus speaks and the lame can walk. In Matthew chapter 4, when tempted, Jesus opens his mouth and Satan flees. Jesus speaks and the enemy retreats. In Acts 9, after Saul's kicked off a horse and hears the voice of God, he becomes a catalyst for the church. Jesus speaks and a murderer is used to write half the New Testament. In Colossians 1, you see Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So in other words, he was present at the Father's hand at creation. And when Jesus said, let there be light, darkness was eradicated at 186,000 miles per second. In John chapter 11, Lazarus returns from the grave and walks out of a tomb. Jesus speaks and the dead are raised. So you can imagine the disoriented looks on all the faces around him wanting to know the same thing. Why did he touch him? I mean, it's one thing for a transcendent God to become an imminent God and actually walk among us, but to touch him, why would he touch the untouchable? Better yet, why would he touch any of us? There's something much stronger than leprosy at work here. The leper did not infect Jesus with his sickness. Notice that? Jesus is just fine. But Jesus infected the leper with his life. And that life that flooded in was so strong, the leprosy could not coexist with it. And here's why. Because the healing power of Jesus to make you clean is more powerful than the sin that made you unclean. Then something curious begins to take place. Jesus instructs the now former leper to not tell anybody about this miraculous healing. He actually says this quite a bit throughout the book of Mark. But why? Some have said that if everyone started to publicize what he did, miracles could become a distraction, get people's attention at the wrong time, Jewish leaders would 
get even more jealous and confused about what sort of Messiah he was, but most importantly that this confusion could lead to a premature death before everything had been accomplished. Maybe that's why Jesus told him not to say anything. In either case, the healed leper ignored Jesus' exhortation. He goes out and starts telling his story. Maybe because like Paul and Silas in Acts, when they said after they broke out of prison, hey, maybe you should lay low for a while, they respond with, I can't hide the things I've seen and heard. And sure enough, the crowds hear about it. People start to flock to Jesus. So much so, the end of this passage and into Mark chapter 2, it says, he can no longer openly enter a town. Just like he thought, the miracle had potentially become a distraction, maybe a danger. So the episode ends with Jesus where? In desolate places. Do you see what's happened? The leper who was the outcast, comes to Jesus to be cleansed. Jesus gives him cleansing, restores him to community, relationships with others, and has new life. But after this great miracle, where do you find Jesus? He's alone. He's in desolate places. He's become an outcast. The leper and the Christ have traded places the outsider is brought in and the chosen one is cast out. This is how sinners enter the family of God. Because the son was forsaken by his father, we can now be sons and daughters of the most high God. For us to be made clean, Christ had to be reckoned unclean. Jesus didn't overlook and just conquer uncleanness. He traded places with it. And he didn't just trade places with leprosy. He traded places with you and with me. The miracle of his touch is that Jesus was willing to share another person's suffering in order to bring about healing. This is such a beautiful foreshadow of the cross. Isaiah chapter 53, by his stripes we are healed. First Peter, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I just wonder if church, like I, I wonder personally if, if you know that Jesus took your place. I wonder that because I, I want you to know that. But I don't mean formally. Like, some of you formally believe, well, he performed the, the, the act on the cross. But maybe your hearts haven't functionally grasped the impact of the gospel. It seems as if for some of us. Letting your heart experience what your mind knows to be true is actually an obstacle for you. And for all of us, these obstacles present themselves in different ways. Through all of the leper's steps to draw near to Jesus, we can see three obstacles that prevent each of us from intimacy with Christ. And the first one is this. Fear. Fear keeps us at what we believe to be a perceived safe distance from God. We 
don't have to draw near to him because we view our relationship with God as transactional as opposed to transformational. It's almost like a foreign exchange program. You get what you want, and from a distance, there's this veneer of intimacy that you can still see him from a long way off. We're so fearful to let what's in the dark be uncovered because we've grown accustomed to the lie that the things we have done, or maybe the things done to us, somehow define us. And sure, I mean, anytime anyone brings their most sensitive moments of their life and their soul before the Lord, it feels scary. But that's what risk feels like. It requires so much courage to do that. No doubt about it, the leper was risking his life to enter the presence of Jesus. Lepers, if, if coming in contact with another person, that they were allowed to be pelted with eggs or even stoned to death. There's no growth in the Christian faith without risk. Think about the times in your life where you have felt the most alive in your relationship with God. Those moments were not met without a deep trust in Jesus. I mean, all of your growth will happen on the edge of your discomfort. I, I'd hate for many of us this morning to miss out on this truth by nodding in formal agreement, but functionally miss out on what God has for us. There was a guy named Charles Blondin who was a 19th century French acrobat. Before the modern day daredevils like Evil Knievel, Travis Pastrana, Tony Hawk, this guy set the bar. I mean, it was, his appeal was the, the morbid to the masses, staring death right in the face. Charles Blondin was the first man to tightrope walk across the 1,100 foot gorge of Niagara Falls. People from all over the world came to see this. It's documented that Napoleon Bonaparte's grandson was actually present for this moment. Dignitaries from every country came near and far to witness this lunatic try and walk across Niagara Falls. And he begins with a 26-foot pole weighing about 50 pounds to help keep his balance. And there's some kind of sense of, oh, he's got something to help him, right? Every time he crosses, people are absolutely amazed. And they're like, this guy can walk on water. And like any man, he's got to one-up what he did before, right? Because he comes across and he says, how many of you think I can cross with a wheelbarrow. People are like, this guy can. Some guy yells out, you can do it. He takes the wheelbarrow and he starts going across it and everyone's losing their ever-loving minds. Thinking this guy's going to fall to his death. And he goes across and he comes back and he has one last question. How many of you think I can do it with a wheelbarrow? with a human in it. And everyone's just like, yes! And he says, who will be my first volunteer? <laughs> How many people do you think got in the wheelbarrow? Not a single solitary one. 
formally, they knew he could do it. Functionally, <laughs> no one in their right mind was going to take the risk. And I think formally, you know Jesus loves you. But functionally, you won't let your heart risk the vulnerability. But the truth is, Jesus wants you to step into the wheelbarrow today and trust him. There's nothing that God doesn't already know about your life that you can't bring to him. Nothing you've done that hasn't already been outed in the cross. Nothing been done to you that has more ability to corrode than the ability Jesus has to come in and heal. Jesus is asking all of us this morning, will you trust me? For over two decades, I ignored the dark moments of my past. I buried them so deep, honestly, I forgot about what happened. Until several years ago, I heard a sermon from a mentor of mine who publicly opened up about the really unfortunate incidences that occurred to him as a kid that produced a lifetime of living in shame. I couldn't believe the courage he had to share it. I, I didn't exhibit any judgment toward him. If anything, I marveled at the freedom he had to talk about it, but it was in that sermon that dark portion of my past came up again and it frightened me to the core. I felt God leading me to talk about it, but I didn't know how. So instead of drawing close to the Lord in my fear, I buried it away and I convinced myself it never needed to come up again. Fast forward to my first year at Stonegate. Eight years ago, I innocently walked into a weekend called Redemption Groups. I walked into that weekend prepared to open up about some various struggles, oblivious to what God was actually up to. And night one, there's guys in my group sharing the most shocking stories I've ever heard. It didn't register to me that men would talk about these kinds of things in church, a place where you put your best foot forward Whitewashed tombs, right? And I felt the Holy Spirit pushing me to open up. No way, I said. The deep amount of shame I felt, I couldn't even look them in the face. But that night, the early days of freedom began to burst forth into my heart. As I told of the time that when I was seven years old, I engaged in an inappropriate relationship with a boy who lived across the street. When I later grew up and entered into puberty and began to recognize the seriousness of what occurred years earlier, I was petrified. I buried it. No one could ever know what happened. When I entered the ministry 13 years ago out of college, I buried it even deeper. If this news came to light, I would be ruined. 
the deep shame from the acts I engaged in produced such a fear of what other people I perceived thought about me. It drove me to a deep idolatry of the approval of others in my life. One of the sinful ways that played out in my life was through pornography. It was a way to control the own narrative of my life. I'll never forget the freedom I felt at the hands of the men who loved me in my most fearful moment that night. Devian Valentine, Ryan Lofton, Jimmy Needham, Andre Gray, Travis Wyckoff, Daniel Bodderf, Cody Moore, Marion Hostetler, and later that weekend, Kevin Hill. I just want to take a moment to say thank you to the men who helped me functionally experience what it means to be loved by Jesus. Thank you for loving me in my most fearful moment and not rejecting me in my lowest. For showing me that Jesus took on my shame and for pointing me to a place where I didn't just recite a formal understanding of his love, but functionally experienced it and began to freely rest in his presence. Church, he wants us to bring the things that we've done and the things done to us to the Lord. Fear is going to be an obstacle to our intimacy with Jesus. But for others in the room, pride remains an obstacle to your intimacy with Christ. You think you don't need to draw close to Jesus, that you'll be just fine where you are. Or perhaps, maybe if you're not fine, you've convinced yourself you can fix it. Or maybe if you can't fix it, you'll just forget about it. You'll bury it away for a couple decades. Or maybe you do come to Jesus, but you certainly don't approach him in humility. You come demanding. You know, my daughters don't demand things from daddy but they sure can ask. Notice the way the leper comes to Jesus. In verse 40, imploring him on his knees, begging him. He clearly has a, a posture of humility. I mean, the fact that he's asking God for something shows he's in need. And to be in need is a good thing. Satan would love to convince you otherwise, but the only prerequisite to be a Christian is to be in need. We're not above asking the Lord to help us. How many times do we fail to ask? A failure to ask is a failure to enjoy. Six times in three chapters in the book of John in the upper room at his last meal with his disciples, Jesus says six times, remain in me and I will remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, it will be given to you. How often do we neglect to enjoy a proactive relationship with Jesus instead waiting for our life to be in a hole before we respond 
reactively. We treat him like the genie. All-powerful genie. Any bitty living space. <laughs> and, and, and when it's convenient for us to get what we want, we rub the lamp of manipulation and then like the foreign exchange program, send him back to the safe distance that we prefer him be. But Jesus says, remain in me, not react to me. Psalm 34 says, those who trust in the Lord lack no good thing. For those of us this morning who maybe you feel like you're carrying this unbearable weight of shame, I want to plead with you. Like, confess your pride. Walk humbly with your God. The things that bring shame in our life never grow smaller in the dark. When my daughters ask me for something, it stirs my affections as a dad to want to give good children good gifts to my children. James says that God is a good father who gives his kids good gifts. God responds to his people when they delight in him. Second Chronicles chapter 7 shows us this much. God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will do this. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. A humility to draw near to God and to ask brings about forgiveness and healing. When I first publicly shared my struggle years ago preaching at a youth retreat with pornography, I'll never forget my wife Sarah's response. And not just the response that night, but the response the next year of our life. She was so proud of me. She championed the humility in her husband. It drew us closer together. I was so thankful for how she spoke of me to others about the freedom I was walking in. I can't tell you enough the lengths that she went to in some dark seasons of our life to see the good that God was forming in me. But men in the room, if just for a brief moment, I could say that the response in marriage can't be, I fixed it. I've got a hold of it. We're good now. We're good now. Let's just kind of move on type attitude. She saw right through that junk. But the second that other people were invited into my weakness and given a first person view of my wickedness, she knew that change was evident. And she wanted to empower me any way she could. She breathed life into my journey with the Spirit. And so fear is an obstacle to our intimacy with Christ. Pride is an obstacle to drawing near to God. And cynicism is an obstacle to enjoying Jesus. Cynicism is uh, interesting. It's a shade different than pride. It, it doubts the motives or the goodness 
and others. How many of us know that Jesus is near, but unlike the leper, we would just choose to stay outside the camp. Yeah, he doesn't have time for someone like me. I don't carry the value necessary to gain his attention. Now, sure, the leper did come inside the camp, but notice his question before Jesus. I mean, even a hint of cynicism, if you will, you can make me clean. And even in that cynicism, doubting Jesus would want to, it didn't keep him from asking. He doubts that Jesus would want to, sure. Just like Thomas, the doubter. Remember him? The other disciples told him what? We have seen the Lord. But he said to them in response, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Even Thomas had to fight through the cynicism. And for the cynic in this room this morning, the truth is you're going to have to be convinced that Jesus actually loves you. That he's bigger than the things you've done. That his love is bigger than the things that have been done to you. C.S. Lewis describes what that could look like for us when he says this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. But if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It won't be broken, but it'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven, he says at the end of that thought, where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Cynicism keeps you from a vulnerability. It allows you to let people look at your life through the window, but it keeps them away from opening the door of your heart and inviting them in to the pain. But the vulnerability of others can bring hope to even the most hateful or even hated cynic. My mom encountered her one time. My mom has spent a lot of her time in prisons providing hope to women in their darkest of places. Bill Glass who started the Bill Glass prison ministries and recently passed away here a few months ago, wrote about my mom's story in one of his books. 
my mom sat across the table in prison from a woman who sat on death row for murdering both her kids. The woman, full of cynicism, questioned my mom. How could God ever love someone like me? Steeped in her shame, she could see no way out. And my mom responded, yes, he does love you because he loves me. Perplexed, the woman responded tearfully and cynically. Yeah, but you didn't murder your kids. And in the most loving and sincere way she could, my mom said, yes, I did. The moment I chose to abort both my children, I pulled the trigger. That woman repented of her sin and placed her faith in Jesus. I'm so grateful to God that when I was in the womb, Jesus saved my mom. I'm grateful to God for my mom's courage to walk in the freedom she has in Jesus to minister alongside so many women. Women who live in a perpetual state of shame, believing the lie that they are anything but who Jesus says they are. You know, healing has happened in your life when that sensitive area in your heart goes from an open wound to a healed scar. When we can appropriately talk about those areas with others, healing is taking place. Something that both my mom's story and the lepers shows us this morning is that it's only when you get close enough to someone to catch their hurt will they be close enough to catch your love. So you can't functionally experience the love of Jesus if you remain outside the camp. He wants you to step out of your fear, to step out of your pride, to step out of your cynicism, to step out of the boat, to walk into the deep, to step into the wheelbarrow and trust him. Because if you do, you will know a love like no other. You will know what it means to be touched by Jesus. I want to take a moment to pray for us. Would you bow your heads with me and I want to give you a moment to respond to the gospel, to the good news that in the depths of your depravity, Romans 5, 8 
says, not the cleaned up, better version of yourself. But while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. When you were still a leper, Jesus chose and wanted and desired to touch you. Not go clean yourself up and present your best veneer of intimacy before him. Not, I can see you from a long way off, but I'll bring you close if I, if I need something. But a continual remaining in him is a relationship that is offered to those who would come before him and bring everything they have right where they are. And the truth is, Jesus wants to meet you in the midst of that right here. Father, I thank you that in our pride, our fear, and our cynicism, when we push you away to keep you at what we believe to be a perceived safe distance, that you chose to do the unfathomable. You left your throne. You wrapped yourself in human flesh. You walked among us, and you touched us. You took on our worst so that we might get your best. You knew no sin, but became sin so that in you, we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you. God, would you be so kind to let that truth drop a little further in the hearts of those who need to hear it this morning? Would you begin the necessary work of healing and produce a church that is vulnerable so that a desperate and dying and dark world around us would see just how great and wonderful your love is. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.